0: Welcome to Obsessed with Design, a show about what makes designers tick. My name's Josh Miles. I'm a principal and brand strategist at Miles Herndon, a branding agency in beautiful downtown Indianapolis. In today's episode, we have a special rebroadcast episode with the one and only Michael Beirut, principal and partner at Pentagram. Michael and I talk about how he got started in the world of design, the founding of Pentagram and what Pentagram is like today, and his favorite projects and stories from the last 30 years. So without further ado, please enjoy this special rebroadcast of my conversation with Michael Beirut. All right, guys, today I am very excited to welcome graphic designer, design critic, educator, and partner at Pentagram, Michael Beirut. Michael, thank you so much for being on Obsessed with Design.
1: Uh, Thanks for inviting me, Josh.
0: I'm not sure if you remember this, but I think we actually met back in 2001. You came to uh, AIGA Indy, and I think it was the uh, the first week that I was on the board. And I was uh, I was struck by the content of your talk, of course, and uh, and actually I had the chance to hang out with you at dinner afterwards and pick your brain on some stuff. So I thought that was very cool. It's cool to uh, come full circle 15 years later and have you on the show. 15 years later, yeah, 15 years ago. It's so craziness you know, one of the things that, um, I've heard a little bit in different interviews before about your, your early professional life, but I'd like to hear a little bit about your, your origin story as a designer, like how you got into design, uh, you know, why, why you studied in Cincinnati and kind of how, how things took place there.
1: Um, sure. So I, um, I grew up in suburban Cleveland in Uh, I was born in the late 50s so I grew up largely in the 60s and I was in high school in the early 70s and I was um, like a lot of you know a lot of your listeners who are interested in design I was good at art when I was in actually in elementary school and junior high school I I liked to draw I was good at art I was also a good student I was good at you know uh, English and writing and I liked to read and stuff like that and so you know one of the things that I was interested in, though, you know, even at a young age was kind of like making my own magazines and stuff like that. I have co- I still have copies of uh, of <laughs> magazines I drew by hand back in the fifth and sixth grade, you know. And so this idea of of like, you know, um, of, of, of publishing, creating, communicating and publishing was something that I was like really interested in even before I had any idea, you know, that that had that that represented any sort of professional option. You know, it's, uh, you you know, most, most, most of your listeners will be younger than me. And, uh, I'm always reminded how, um, you know, how different it was, uh, back when I was growing up in an age before the internet, before email, before, you know, the easy access to information we have today, you know, no podcast, three network channels, you know, magazines that you could buy at, uh, you know, a newsstand or bookstore or something, and, you know, newspapers that would arrive on your doorstep in the morning and in the evening. Uh, and But but really, it was, uh, if you were interested in, say, something like design, um, you could literally go for, you know, months without anything about design kind of crossing your, you know, coming into your uh, frame of vision, you know? so. It was only by accident that I learned there was something called graphic design. Specifically, uh, I just happened upon a couple of books in first my high school library, then our local library. And um, then I asked, uh, I, I wasn't particularly adventurous or am, ambitious, I guess. I'm, I'm, I guess I was ambitious and hardworking, but I kind of the idea of like going somewhere far away for school sort of seemed like no one I knew was most people I knew weren't doing that. So, um, I asked uh, my guidance counselor if there was a, uh, a school that taught graphic design anywhere like in Ohio and through some miracle. And I can't imagine how one would do this without the internet. She's like looking it up in big reference
0: (laughs) books or something. I really don't know. There's no way to know.
1: Yeah, it's strange. But uh, thank God she actually um, hooked me up with the University of Cincinnati that had and still has a really good and interesting and somewhat unique graphic design program, you know, so in the, I I graduated there in 1980 uh thanks to a number of um internships I had had while I was in school I had made a connection with uh some people in Massimo Vignelli's office and so you know uh, without sort of like sensing that it was like bizarre or crazy I ended up kind of starting at Vignelli Associates as a very low level designer the week after I graduated from college. And I sort of, even to this day, can't give people any advice about how I did that because I look <laughs> back at it now, it just seems like this crazy series of flukes and lucky breaks that led me to that rather than any kind of coherent strategy or any, any specific um, positive traits that I had that actually entitled me to have that position.
0: So I just recently saw where you said that you had the, uh, the New York subway map in your room when you were in school. Uh, so did you know that that was Vignelli's work before you tracked him down or is that complete coincidence also?
1: Josh, I swear to God, I can't, I've actually thought about this and I can't even quite figure out how I knew anything at all. Really? Um, you know, this was, you know, I mean, I grew up in a milieu where like, even like If I would have like shown that map to someone and said, do you know who designed this? They wouldn't even understand the question because it didn't look like, you know, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a pretty thing. It was just this functional thing. And the idea that someone had actually uh, intentionally, you know, and through a great deal of work caused it to look a certain way was, you know, would have been like really kind of esoteric way of looking at it and um you know and the idea that it was part of a tradition of geometric map making that goes back to the uh you know the henry beck map that was done for the london underground you know Mm -hmm. decades before uh and that it had precedent in other sorts of transportation maps around the world all over or and that it was designed by someone um, by a firm called unimark by a guy named massimo bignoli you know so i'm not sure how i learned any of that stuff to tell you the truth uh, I do know that when I um, I visited New York when I was in high school in 1974 um, and that that was uh, that map was still the current one there I did bring it back as a souvenir I could I thought it was cool looking but it was also wrapped up in this idea with how cool i thought new york was then new york was actually cool in kind of an anti-way it was like dirty dangerous like (laughs) like you know crazy compared with the way it is now um but i just thought it was so exciting and i knew that that was where i wanted to move after i graduated um you know in those days the prospect of um trying to do you know creative work in the midwest was I'm not saying it's impossible, but I sort of like just I wanted to go where where it would be easier. Let's say maybe I'm not sure. I you know I didn't I I didn't I wanted to be I wanted to be surrounded by people that were doing that would understand what I understood and uh, and were doing what I did. And I sense you had to go to a big major metropolitan area to uh, to achieve that. So, but I swear to God, Josh, I sort of like can't you know um you know today you could just hey kids at home just open google type nyc subway map designer you'll get that answer like literally in less than a second and i can't remember how i came to even the first time i saw the name massimo Vignelli. how i came to attach it with any piece of work he did um you know even when i was in college um you know our library had Books on graphic design, but but they'd be you know there weren't that many books on graphic design even. It sort of was um, uh, yeah. it was a uh, it was fun in a way because people everyone, like no one knew anything. So everyone was sort of like surprised in a way, you know, you could research things, but <laughs> it was just great. You never knew what was in store for you. You just would kind of be based things on word of mouth or a little bit of information an anecdote you pick up here and there. And nowadays where you can kind of like take long, luxurious baths and hundreds of, uh, yards of square miles of, you know, web pages on any given subject, uh, is, you know, it's a, it's a completely different world in a world that I actually love and a world that would have probably driven me crazy, you know, with obsessive pursuits, uh, back when I was, uh, a kid in school. So I'm kind of grateful it was invented shortly thereafter rather than shortly before, but it's, um, it's, it's one way
0: or another, it's definitely a different world. That's for sure. I think it's, um, you know, definitely sad to hear the passing of Massimo and uh, a guy that I greatly respected. I never had a chance to meet him personally, but it's so cool that you can, that we have access to these videos, you know, so many videos of him speaking. And so young designers, if you've never, you know, kind of heard Massimo's take on the world and, and some of his past interviews, those are great things to go back to and take a look at. Um, So fast forward to today, if somebody wanted to learn about Pentagram, there's there's plenty of information out there that you can go find on you guys. But um, one of the things that I'm always curious about is kind of um, as you're broken out into teams, as I understand, kind of how your team is set up and how Mm -hmm. you guys operate and who those roles are and and just kind of how you guys collaborate together within that structure.
1: Okay. yeah. So. um the, pen, the way Pentagram is set up is uh, really was was put in place when the firm was founded, again, back in the mid-70s in 1972. That would have been when I was in the ninth grade. And because uh, it's called Pentagram, which is founded by five guys, and the five guys that founded it all had had successful careers running smaller freelance practices independently and in various combinations and decided to join together to create what they thought would be a bigger entity that could take on bigger projects. However, they all still really enjoyed working as designers, you know, and, and, Coming to work and not being managers, not being business people, but but, but sitting and doing design work—that was really what their ambition was. And even in those days, there were enough bigger firms, and certainly lots of big advertising agencies as counterexamples to that. You know, um, you know, once you get to a certain size, the people, founders whose reputation actually contributed to that success, a lot of times get. Um, you know they're no longer able to sit and do the thing that made the firm successful in the first place. They're yeah, too busy, sure. you know, um, glad handing clients, or negotiating with landlords, or applying for bank loans, or doing all this stuff that business people do. So what they thought they would do is kind of form this confederation where each of them would retain the size of business practice they had before they joined, uh, meaning. That each of those five partners would, um, uh, you know, manage a pretty small team that permitted them to stay involved with every project. To have direct contact with every one of the designers and to have direct contact with the clients and other collaborators they were working with. They could work independently on smaller projects. They could work in concert on bigger ones, particularly ones that were multidisciplinary in nature, because there were three graphic designers, one architect and one product designer in 72. And, um, so that was the basic pentagram idea. And to a remarkable extent, that's exactly the same idea that we have now. So to answer your question, um, in, um, uh, today in our New York office, we have, well, uh, we have five offices with 21 partners around the world. In New York, we have eight partners and each of those eight partners, um, manages their own team. Um, that team is someone who, you know, those teams are, are more or less autonomous. The partner has, you know, um, I can hire or, you know, I can hire or very, very rarely like fire, uh, uh whoever i want on my team without consulting with any of my partners i can take on whatever project i want set the fees for it without consulting any of my partners and they each can do that as well and the idea is that um you know the appeal to someone joining pentagram the appeal for me certainly was that um uh you know i was able to kind of get you know the autonomy of um, of a small design practice with the infrastructure of something much bigger. And I think spiritually and philosophically, the sense of of camaraderie you get with having really talented people around to work with and learn from. And, um, you know, all those things are still true today. And, um, you know, so here in New York, where, you know, my partners are, you know, brilliant designers who I admire no matter where they worked or, you know, whether I was partners of them are not but you know it's like paula Scher and michael garricky Abbott miller luke hayman natasha jen eddie opara um emily oberman you know they're like just my some of my favorite designers in the world i have lots of favorite yeah. designers in the world but they are all on that list and um uh, we all work side by side in a um in an open plan office uh all the teams work out in the open the partners all sit together the teams all sit in groups um my team consists of eight designers some of whom have been with me for five or six years or so mm-hmm. uh some of whom are um uh are more or less brand new and have been with me for a year or two um we have a couple of interns and we have um uh, two project managers
0: mm-hmm.
1: who've had a little bit of design experience but basically are kind of work on a combination of project management, strategy, writing, stuff like that, and support the design work, and then an admin person who kind of keeps the whole thing organized. So I, that's how my team's set up, but Emily Oberman's team might be set up differently, or Eddie Opara or Michael Garricky's teams might be set up differently. And, um, you know, Abbott Miller and Paula Sher and Natasha Jenna, Luke Hayman's teams might be set up differently, too. Um, There's no requirement for what size they have to be. There's no requirement for, um, you know, how many designers you're supposed to have, how much work you're supposed to do. Um, The only real rule of thumb is just as it would pertain if you were running your own business, Um, you know, Try to fix it so your team's overhead is less than the amount of <laughs> paying work you're doing, which is um, impossible to avoid when you're on your own. It's yeah. a little bit easy, you know, it's when you're in a really big organization, those things get muddled. Um, but here at Pentagram, um, what, you know, s- since I've been, I've been here now for 26 years and going all the way back to the beginning and certainly back to the beginning of my tenure here. Um, each of those teams has their own profit and loss. So, you know, I know what my overhead is. I know, um, you know, I, I set all the salaries for, uh, uh, for all the members of my team. And, um, I sort of, I'm responsible for generating enough business and invoicing that business and covering, you know, the costs of, Um, the people that work for me and the share of the overhead we have here at 204 Fifth Avenue in New York.
0: So, so what about your role in particular? I mean, obviously you're, you're still designing, but what's kind of your split of design time versus writing versus kind of oversight of the team or, you know, talking to clients, what's, what's a normal day or week look like for you?
1: I mean, I, I admit I've always been like a. a, a fast designer, um, I've, I've never done the kind of design work that actually required, you know, hours of labor to do, you know, I'm not, I'm yeah. not, I'm not like one of those, like, um, I'm not sure how to characterize it, but you know, like I, like I look at someone say like Marion Banshees or someone like that, where the work that she does, which I think is brilliant, you know, just requires, you know, painstaking attention that she alone can give. I mean, my favorite mm-hmm. – I'm from the the Bob Gill, you know, school of design where the, the best design solution is one you can describe to someone over the phone and they can see it in their mind. And whether it's, you know, set in Helvetica or Franklin Gothic or whether it's, you know, printed on really nice paper or cheap paper, you know, the idea is sufficient to kind of like get you 95% of the way there. Yeah. And I, I've been like that my whole – I mean, I was like that in school. I was like that, you know, I, you know, I was even, I was like that at, uh, at Vignelli, which I think partly made me kind of last 10 years there. Cause I sort of, it didn't really matter. Mm-hmm. I wasn't like trying to like invent my own style and counter distinction to Massimo Vignelli's approach. I sort of just thought, you know, it was more about what's the right approach for any one project and then, okay, Helvetica, PMS warm red, black shirt. Sure, why not? You know, <laughs> I'm glad that's been decided already. I don't have to worry about it. Um, no, no. So like I do obsess now, I obviously like everyone else, I'm obsessed about typefaces and colors and stuff like that. But, um, but I've never, but it's like, I've, I've never done the kind of design. I, 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 I like, I haven't designed, like I actually sat and designed something for more than like an hour at a time. Like I can't, I mean, I can't even, I I can't even remember like maybe ever doing that, but I I certainly haven't done it like in in, in 10 years, let's say. So that's just not how I design. So that means though, that um, what I do do though, is I am one of those people who um, I don't think by sketching, I sort of work it out in my head quite a bit. So when Mm -hmm. I am working on a project or I have some sort of specific problem that uh, we've been Asked to work out on behalf of a client or someone else, I'll sort of like work, turn it over and over and over and over again in my mind and, um, kind of just be, you know, kind of groping for the solution there. So, and I can do that anywhere. I do that when I'm, you know, running three miles in the morning. I'll do that when I'm you know walking the dog at night. So just like anyone else, you sort of think these things through. Mm-hmm. Mine. So if that counts as design, you can add much, many more hours than I've been claiming. <laughs> for it, right. And then, um, you know, I just barely, because of my, I, I just barely miss being the age where I, uh, kind of like play where I, where I where it's sufficient for me to kind of like do design work on the computer. And so, um, you know, I, I I don't know. I couldn't do anything in Illustrator, Photoshop, or um, uh, you know, or InDesign or any of those things. You know, I'd sort of like you know if you had, I can probably to this day. Do a, you know, a illustration board and rubber cement paste up of a mechanical like we used to back in the day. I could do that <laughs> probably tomorrow. I could do that right this second if you gave me the tools. But I sort of like, um, you know, I was already kind of off the boards and supervising things in the, in, by the time the mid-80s were around. Mm-hmm. And so I never, you know, it was I, I was always, you know, I always had designers who I'd work with who was just more efficient for them to do that. So I regret to say uh, that I may never kind of, like, get onto a computer and learn to design things that way. Um, and and that's probably just one of many shortcomings that I have as a designer that I've learned to work around, I guess. But um, so, uh, like, I'll spend, to get to your question, I'll probably spend, uh, you know, a fraction of the time actually sitting and, you know, designing. I'll, you know, feel like, I do have, like, all these, you know, I, I say I don't design by sketching, but I have somehow accumulated, you know, 111 little marble covered notebooks, uh, uh, that are filled with lots of stuff, including the occasional sketch of a design solution. So, um, and a lot of, but a lot of times I'm sort of like, just kind of like annotating things that I've already worked out in my head. I don't know. It's hard to describe. And, um, so I will, I will spend time doing that. I spend time talking to clients, obviously, talking to existing clients, all of whom I really, I'm really lucky because I really, really, really um, am in a position where I can choose my clients carefully. And I think, and help them choose me carefully, actually, if I kind of can be less arrogant about it. You know, part of what my, part of, I think, what our jobs are as designers is actually, you know, making sure that um, all those people that are out in the world get matched up properly with the right um, you know, with the right collaborator. And I think that there are some really cool clients out there who I just wouldn't be the right designer for. And if one of my partners is a better designer, I'm happy to pass them that way. If one of my uh, competitors is the right designer, I've, I've passed on work to people who, you know, compete with Pentagram sometimes if I really think they'd be better at the job than me or anyone in my office would be. And so the ones that I do take on are ones that I, that generally are, People that I like, who are doing work that I think is interesting for um, a greater purpose that I believe in. In some cases, passionately. In some cases, I just think it's interesting or fun. Um, but it's—I'm uh, lucky where I—it's I, been a long time since I've agreed to do something, you know, just for the money. That's—that's uh, mm-hmm. uh, that's really a. Um, unless you're really used to doing that, it's a really unpleasant thing to do, in my opinion. So. And I've really acquired a distaste for it, so I try to avoid doing it. Um, so I'll spend, you know, I'll, I'll probably spend two hours in any one day. Sometimes, some, I mean, like I'll spend whole days, you know, interviewing clients for a new project where we're starting out. We're trying to gather information about them. At the minimum, I probably spend, you know, the better part of, you know, a couple of hours, you know, talking either in person or on the phone to clients. And I'll probably spend you know, a couple of hours uh, sitting with my designers and kind of talking through things. Uh, Sometimes I'll sit right next to my computer and say, no, move this there. Sometimes I'll say, um, in the very last conversation I had uh, before I sat down in this room was with uh, my partner, Luke Heyman, who was breaking up a meeting in this room with his designers. And I could tell from the stuff on the table that they were on this quest that I've been on for years now, which is to find a typeface that either is um, a really good cut of Futura or an interesting alternative to Futura that has that kind of Futura Mm -hmm. thing going on. (laughs) And so I've just been through this on another project with one of my designers. And so we had a conversation about that. So we talk about design a lot and we take a lot of pleasure in that. And then I think it's also just um, part of what makes us you know what makes any designers work more fun and more interesting is just kind of looking at stuff that doesn't have anything necessarily to do directly with the task at hand but what could somehow which could somehow inform it so you know so sometimes i'll just get involved with doing something that's you know barely related to a project but tangentially so you know visiting some facility or just going to look at some exhibit or something with the idea being that somehow it's all grist for the mill. so (laughs)
0: <laughs> well, I think maybe circling back a little bit to what you mentioned about competitors, I I really enjoyed your your point of view and your piece on swimming and not diving about the uh, the Met logo that Wolf Hollins did, um, and I I think whether you intended it to be this this noble piece or not, I think it was cool to you know kind of stand up for that conversation. I guess, mm-hmm. and I know I've yeah. heard you talk about how how silly it is that people like the instant criticism culture. But but I I thought it was interesting too that I, I also dug up that um you felt like talking openly about how much you hated Verizon's previous logo was one of the reasons why you got the call to do the the new one. So can you talk <laughs> through that a little bit?
1: I, I'm I'm not sure. I, I actually um the only time I ever said anything publicly about Verizon's previous logo, which I really do think was just a horrible, 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 horrible logo. <laughs> yes. Um, was, um, um, I, I, for design observer, I wrote a piece on the history of AT&T's, um, AT&T's logo, uh, the new logo they have now, but particularly I, I went through the history of what that company was and, mm-hmm. uh, and particularly their collaboration over many years with Saul Bass, who designed starting in the 70s, first the, uh, uh, you know, um, a really groundbreaking corporate identity system formed then and then a, uh, another one in the, um, I think, in the late 80s, early 90s or late 80s, rather when was it? No, it's, I forget when he designed the, uh, the sphere, but then, um, uh, but it was really interesting. It was all tied up with, you know, kind of the economic history of the United States where that was, uh, Bell had this, uh, um, benign monopoly on telecommunications that was viewed as being necessary for the orderly operation of, you know, the nation's communication networks. And then, um, In the early 80s, there was an antitrust suit that eventually went through that required Bell to be broken up into many other smaller babies. So I wrote a piece Mm -hmm. about this. And uh, my wife, my lovely wife, Dorothy, actually worked briefly for – for new york it's a, for, she actually worked for new york telephone which is part of the bell system then after divestiture new york telephone became nine it became something called american bell then it changed its name to 9x and emerged with something and ultimately after she left the company it turned into uh verizon and in my piece i said i didn't even use the word verizon i just said um, um, and then, um, after she left, you know, uh, it ultimately turned to a company that some people feel has the ugliest logo in the world. And I just linked <laughs> the phrase ugliest logo in the world with a piece about how ugly the Verizon logo was that I did not write as I recall. <laughs> and so that was the only public reference I ever made to how ugly I thought that logo was. But, um, but it was actually one of those cases where, um, we were approached by, uh, um, the new head of marketing at Verizon, this, a brilliant uh, guy uh, named Diego Scotti, who I, who I really respect uh, enormously and like personally. Uh, and he actually gave us this interesting assignment. He didn't say, he. in fact, he didn't say, I want a new logo. He said the opposite of that. He said, I hate it when new marketing people come in and throw out the old logo and replace it. But we just have problems with this one. Could you look at it? And the problems were quite simple, actually, and, and like evident. And you could... It, like the, you could figure them out as easily as I could. It didn't take like a, a genius piece of analysis to break it down. Um, you know, for whatever reason, there are lots of theories about how that logo came to be. But uh, for viewers who may have already, for, for listeners who may have forgotten what um, what it looks like, uh, what it looked like, uh, it had, um, it was the word Verizon in Helvetica bold italic. And it had, for some for for some reason the Z was exaggerated and the lo- and the bottom horizontal part of the Z dropped down below the the baseline of the other characters and then swished off to the side to the right and <laughs> and when it was reproduced in full that was that faded out so it had a gradation mm-hmm. then atop the variety uh, atop that configuration was a big angled form that that was referred to sometimes as the check mark by people at Verizon. I'm not sure if people who weren't at Verizon had cause to call it anything at all, but that also had, as I recall, a two-way gradation. Um, it was a, you know, it was a, a two-sided, you know, check mark angled form and it angled, it gra- it it faded out going at, at both ends. Right. And so, um, you know, basically it was a complicated mark that, no one really could understand, you know, why is the Z doing that? Why is that, you know, is that thing a check mark or not? So it was hard, mm-hmm. it was complicated, hard to understand. And most pointedly, I think because it had so many kind of graphic tricks in it, specifically those gradations, um, almost any time it was reproduced, it had to be altered somehow. Because, for instance, if you were doing a you know an extruded metal sign or a built out three dimensional sign and you wanted to do that logo on a storefront you can't represent that gradation in a in three dimensions because yeah. you, know, you can't do
0: a gradient of metal <laughs> you
1: can't do a gradient you can't make it sort of like turn into air as it sort of like fades away <laughs> and so people had different ways of doing that um, you, you know if you were doing it really small if you're doing a one color there are all these different things so all is, that's that's all fine and good, except that meant that, you know, like you, we could literally take a a 10 minute walk from our office and, uh, photograph 20 different variations of that logo. Right. Okay. So, okay. So then let's count them. There's three problems. One complicated, two hard to understand, or no one complicated and hard to understand, um, uh, two, um, uh, hard to reproduce, so it was inconsistent, and then um, oh no, so complicated. Number one, hard to understand. Two, and uh, uh, hard to reproduce. You know, inconsistent. Three, right? Mm-hmm. And so their 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 aspiration as a brand is to be um, simple, easy, and reliable right and what's really funny is those three things are the opposite of the three traits that their logo <laughs> exactly and, you know, complicated hard to understand <laughs> and inconsistent is like the opposite of simple easy and reliable so um and 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 you know they knew and like and um our client understood that and said you know i i, I like didn't say let's change the logo I just said could you just look at it and just kind of like sort of just an it, mm-hmm. And so we just started doing this like series of kind of almost exercises. We weren't like embarking on this thrilling thing to design a brand new logo for the brand new Verizon because it was also one of those weird cases where oddly, you know, their name, which is a made up name, I think is actually sort of a good name. Um, you know, it's a combination of Veritas, you know, the Latin word for, uh, truth and horizon, meaning looking far away, I guess that's where it came from. Um, we'll so, go with that. yeah, so this, so the names seems okay to me. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so we just started like doing these things where we said, well, what if we, what if we just sort of like chilled the type out and just kind of kept it Helvetica, but, and we looked at a lot of other typefaces, but it's sort of like, was, why not just keep it Helvetica except make it a little less aggressive and just sort of like make it better resolved. Mm-hmm. What if we didn't do that thing with the Z? What if we, if that check mark is a thing, why not actually just do it as a regular check mark? And um, we kind of just did these exercises where we just were turning this thing off and turning this thing down and just seeing where it went. And finally, we had this um, version where it was just very simple, the word Verizon with a check mark after it. And And I think somehow if they were in a different business or if they were a startup, That might not be the best logo for a company, but if you're just, you know, if you're playing a big part in people's lives, but you're trying to be largely unobtrusive, you know, you're not trying to, Mm -hmm. you know, make people excited about, you know, um, you know, excited about you as a, as a as a specific lifestyle brand. But actually, when you think about it, everything you love about your iPhone, if you have an iPhone, is only made possible because of the network that all the, that everything on the iPhone runs on, right? The phone itself is swell, but it doesn't, it's just like a hunk of metal unless there's a wireless network to make all the stuff it does possible. And so people tend to sort of discount, you know, all these uh, uh, wireless providers and telecom companies and you know they, they get mad at them they they get mad at them somehow, and they continue loving their phones and so it's it's that's it kind of a curious thing but um <laughs> but it just seemed like doing something just simple and clear was actually the thing, and I remember actually sitting at a desk and saying, "You know we're not going to get any points for cleverness on this and I actually like you know I remember like spending a couple of days trying to retrofit some clever thing back into it. Mm-hmm. you know I even thought. What if we made the dot over the eye round instead of square, you know? And then we did that and it just sort of seemed like self-indulgent designer, you know? And then I made the dot round, you know? It just was, I don't know. <laughs> it just didn't seem, you know, it just seemed pointless. And finally, um, we said, look, we think this is really the best thing. And, um, and to our surprise, um, uh, our client actually got approval on their end of it. And so... It suddenly um the company had a new logo um Wyden and Kennedy did the launch campaign for it really effectively. There was a big team of other it was also one of those things that um I knew that we sensed would have a a lot of people handling it, and so you can't you know there are certain identities I've done where, that I'm proud of that really required you know that we're like building, you know, a house of cards almost, building like a... Uh,
0: sure, where you feel like you've got to touch all the pieces. And-
1: beautiful little delicate sculpture that I have to do it, then just you deliver it to people and you say, now don't touch this thing, don't breathe on it, don't let it get wet, don't leave it out overnight, you know, um, it'll just be fine, just keep it out, you know, don't no direct sunlight. <laughs> so, and that, that can work sometimes, it sort of depends, but this is a case where, you know, at the moment of launch, it would be handled by probably... Um, you know, half a dozen to a dozen different agencies, Um, none of, you know, uh, all of them would be working really fast. So it had to be something that just could kind of take a beating and kind of keep working. Then I was also interested in the idea that just like, you know, uh, you know, my model was always the the target design, you know, the the identity for target, which is the most boring identity in the world. It's a circle with a dot inside it. It's the name of the company's target. Here's your logo. It's a target. It just looks boring. But you think about all the things that Target has done with that with that image, mm-hmm. and you also have to admit that it's the simplicity of that image that enables all the creative work to be done upon it. Um, I sort of got very interested in this idea of not succumbing to um, what do I call it? preemptive cleverness, like stand back. I will, I will, I'm the only person that can be clever and I'll be clever enough for everyone forever. This thing will arrive fully clever. And all you can do is just reproduce it over and over again. It can't do anything (laughs) other than what it's doing on the day of its birth. Right. And I don't know. I think that, and and like, again, you win awards for that and people are like, shit, you designed that. How great, you know, but on the other hand, if you're trying to design something that will endure, sometimes a, um, you know, doing just a nice, you know, a a clean white T-shirt is actually the thing that um, is the thing you want to put on that day as opposed to, you know, a a clever colored tie or some other fancy pair pair of socks with stripes or something clever like that, you know. And so um, that was sort of the thinking we went through when we were doing that. And I have to admit, what made it again worthwhile is having, um, you know, really smart collaborators um, and a uh, really smart people at the client company and, and, and also just being able to be commonsensical about it. We never had to revert to, you know, kind of making up. A, I mean, I told you sort of the brand rationale and I never described it in terms other than that when I was asked to describe what the rationale was, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that designers do themselves a real disservice by thinking that they have to, because we're, if we're working in a, in a commercial context, we sort of end up adapting in sort of a fairly clumsy way the worst parts of the way business people communicate with each other the the meaningless jargon the uh the cliches the the, like kind of like the empty sort of phrases that make people feel i don't know like pleasant and professional, I guess, but actually don't really mean anything and don't resemble the way that human beings talk. And I think designers are, we're here to represent human beings in this whole equation and, uh, trying to talk like a, um, a PowerPoint presentation doesn't really, um, fit the bill usually.
0: That's awesome. Um, so what would you say maybe you're most obsessed with right now? I'm trying to find that substitute for Futura. I guess I don't know. That's one thing. Um,
1: <laughs> um, well, uh, it's like, well, let me think from a um, from a design point of view. Well, I mean, if, if I have an ambition right now, it it'll, it'll, it would build directly off that thing I just described, Josh. Um, I've uh, with one of my longtime partners outside of Pentagram, Jessica Helfand, uh, who's one of, she and I were two of the four people, along with her late husband, Bill Drentel, and the brilliant uh, British writer, Rick Pointer, co-founded Design Observer, you know, Mm -hmm. about a dozen years ago, 15 years ago. Um, Jessica and I have been asked to uh, set up a um, sort of a, a design uh, unit within the Yale School of Management, the y- Yale's Business School. And what, it's something I've been thinking about a lot, I can't say obsessive sounds like, I don't know, I'm not sure I'm obsessed with it. But I find it's the thing I think about, I'm thinking about a lot these days is, you know, what's a meaningful way to bring design into a business school curriculum. Mm-hmm. And I think, again, if you're kind of like exasperated by Cliches or kind of what people default to all the time. These images of uh, associated with design thinking that have to do with whiteboards and groups of people writing things on post-it notes and putting them in groups and then kind of I don't know, you know, record. You know, then then I guess something happens because of that. I don't know. It's sort of like there's um um there's a there's a way design there's like these you know, business exercises that I think people think, you know, represent the way design is done, except there's, you know, the kind of design that really gives joy, you know, improves people's lives, changes the world. A lot of times doesn't happen because people were brainstorming with post-it notes. I think you can kind of weirdly, you know, I mean, I mean, nor can you say that, um, I don't think it's useful on the other hand to say that, um, design is magic and lone geniuses are the only people qualified to practice it. And you just have to wait for lightning to strike and then amazing things happen and don't ask questions about it. That's not a very useful way to think about design either. You know, it's not useful regardless of what your aim is, whether you're setting up a curriculum in a business school or just trying to do it. You know, I think, uh, the truth is somewhere in between and right now I think, um, kind of the, uh, the default kind of, uh, you know, non lightning striking the genius approach is room full of people with multicolor magic markers, post-it notes and a, um, you know, a moderator who's the timekeeper and making sure that ideas are put in parking lots and stuff like that. You know, I mean, it's, um, somewhere between those two things. Is, an, is, I think, some interesting way of thinking about what design is. And uh, the Yale School of Management is an amazing institution, partly because uh, you know it's at Yale, which is a school with an extraordinary uh, tradition in the arts and humanities. That is, the Yale School of Art is where I believe they first taught a program with the name graphic design in their graduate school there. Um, but they also have an extraordinary, you know, drama school, extraordinary um, uh, school of music, you know, obviously law school, medical school, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a, across all disciplines, they have a uh, um, they've got a fantastic reputation. But I think it's always rooted in the in the respect for the liberal arts and humanities, as opposed to rooting it solely in the world of engineering and technology, which I think is a comfort place where people like to go with design nowadays because it just seems to live so happily there. Um, But yet, you know, human, uh, still human beings are still human beings. They still communicate with each other in all the brilliant and faulty ways that they always have and design as a role to play there. And, you know, professional designers or so-called self-proclaimed professional designers like like me, only uh, can only at best be half of that equation. When we're working in the commercial world, at least, um, or working in any world, you're collaborating with other people all the time. Whether you're a uh, you know a money making designer in search of high paying clients, or whether you're out trying to change the world, working with self initiated projects and trying to find administrators that NGOs to be your partners, those other people are. The only way your work is going to get done, and our ability to kind of make our processes and our and our uh, you know and and really our our enthusiasms and passions and obsessions intelligible to those other people is to come up with models and language and uh, methodologies that actually kind of can can make sense to them and help them think about it as opposed to. I'm a genius. I'm going to do some magic. Just close your eyes when you open them. I'll have design for you. That works too, by the way. That can work too, but it's not. Essentially, it's not a. uh, It's it's like it's a rep. It's a thing. You know, musician is more
0: Massimo's way, right? Is the ta da?
1: Yeah, totally Massimo's. But you know, if you've ever talked to a magician, no one's more interested in both brutally hard work, history of the craft. Um, methodology, technique—you uh, know—than them. They, they just, their whole trick is it only looks like they're making it up out of the clear blue sky and out of the thin air at that moment. What you're actually seeing is the result of, you know, thousands of hours of practice and thousands of hours of preparation just for this moment of absolute um, ease and inevitability. And I think design works exactly the same way.
0: Well I think that speaks to your ability to knock it out in a sketchbook to kind of have it there in front of you there's the solution and it's not that it only took you 30 seconds to sketch it out it's that you know you've been doing this for long enough that it's kind of worked through in your head and
1: Yeah then yeah Paula Scher has a quote where she says you know it took me um you know it took me 30 seconds to design that thing but it took me 30 years to be in in a position to design that in 30 seconds. So I, and I think that's true for all of us. It's like, uh, you know, all of us are kind of, and that's what makes, I think design so interesting is regardless of how, even if we could come up with a single one true methodology for doing design, each of us would always just because of the inevitability of, uh, of human nature, we're all different. We're all bring different personal histories and tastes and, habits and talents to any one situation so it it by its nature it can't come out the same and uh and so whether you've been doing it for 30 years or three years or three months you're bringing something in your background to that opportunity that no one else can
0: replicate well i know we're getting tight on time so before i let you go I wanted to, um, whether you'd call them obsessions or side projects or labors of love, uh, congratulations on the second print run I saw was announced for the book, How To. No, thank That's you. I yeah, love yeah. the book. It's awesome. Thanks. So if any of you haven't picked that up, it's a great uh, collection of Michael's work and a lot of uh, the stories behind those projects. Um, and of course, be sure to check out Design Observer and the the podcast as well, which is yeah. which is fantastic. Thank um, you. Is there anywhere else that people should be tracking you down online or other places that? uh, young designers could check out what you're up to?
1: No, I've got a, um, um, I mean, things that uh, I've got a Twitter feed at, uh, at my name, Michael Bayruth dot it's, uh, at Michael Bayruth B I E R U T. Um, and, um, and probably the things that I see that I really like, um, you know, day by day that I just think are interesting or exciting. That's where I'll kind of share them with the world. And so if you want to follow me, there be my guest. Um, and, and, you know, and, like I, I best of all, I think I provide links to other people and their work, and you know um, other people that I think are worth following too. And I think that's we live in a golden age of uh, of inspiration in a way. I mean, no one has any excuse, I, I don't think, and no one has any excuse to be bored or say that they're they're not inspired. <laughs> sure, you know, there's just so much out there. There's so many different models for a young person to follow there's so many different um different ways to sort of practice design and it's as you know i i feel like when i look at that landscape of different ways of doing uh doing work i'm as inspired by it today when i look around as i was you know uh 35 years ago when i started out
0: well, very cool. Michael, it's, it's been a pleasure catching up with you. Um, these have been some awesome stories. I think we could probably go on for another hour if we had time. Maybe we can get you on for a part two sometime in the future.
1: Yeah. Thanks, Josh. It has been fun talking to you.
0: Well, Michael Beirut, thank you for being with us and thank you for being obsessed with design. Okay, guys, that's episode number 59 in the books. For all of today's show notes, head on over to ObsessedShow.com. Please tweet at Josh Miles or at obsessed Show and let us know who you think we should interview next. If you have a sec, pop over to iTunes and give us a quick rating and review and help others find the show. Obsessed with Design is a product of the Design Obsessed team at Miles Herndon. To learn more about us, check out MilesHerndon.com. Our intro music is Matchbox Girl by Kazzy Joe and our show is always edited by Jen Eds at the Brassy Broadcast Company. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.